You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Thank you very much for joining us today. The Doctor's Lounge is broadcast on Thursday mornings on America's Web Radio and is available by podcast at the iTunes Store. We are proud to say thanks to you, the support of our listeners. We're having about 15,000 podcast downloads a month, and that is uh, not a credit to us, but to you, our loyal listeners. So thank you very much uh, for your support. For today's show, uh, we have a, a smattering of things, but the, the real highlight here is uh, that uh, the uh, the Doctors Lounge, the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, uh, traveled to Nashville this week, and were proud participants and sponsors of the State Policy Network meeting. Uh, this is the second time that we have attended that meeting, but uh, this meeting is in its 24th year and uh, began with very humble beginnings uh, with its first meeting. I think if memory serves Washington, D.C., where they had a whopping 19 people show up for the meeting that was in some tiny little ballroom somewhere, uh, and uh, it has ballooned, enjoyed great growth over low these 24 years till this year, I believe, again, if memory serves, that uh, there was about 1,200 participants uh, in this and uh, filled up a huge ballroom uh, at the Opryland Hotel in Nashville, uh, where I was happy to go back to. I trained there at Vanderbilt, so it was uh, kind of a bit of a homecoming for me, and I did find a little time to meet up with some old friends, and I was uh, very happy and grateful for that. But it was an awesome meeting. Um, I was only able to be there for the first two days, but uh, my colleagues uh, on the board, uh, Dr. Gross, Dr. Haynes, um, and uh, some other guests were able to go and uh, participate in a panel. And the panel covered uh, three of our major topics, which was uh, maintenance of certification, direct primary care, and certificate of need. So uh, unfortunately, I had to come home and uh, be a doctor and take care of patients and things, so I couldn't be at that part. But we had coverage there for the entire week, and I was pleased and privileged to get two interviews, which will cover the last three segments of the show, uh, and we're pleased to have uh, Brian Blaze from uh, the uh, Mercatus Center at George Mason University, uh, who's going to give us an update on Obamacare from the scholarly review standpoint, sort of a summary of everything that's happened in the last three or four months. And believe me, uh, if you follow this stuff, you already know there has been some big things happening in the last three or four months. Uh, It is shocking drop-dead shocking that as much as Obamacare is imploding at this point that it has received next to nothing in terms of attention in this presidential campaign. So we will do our best to fill that gap and bring you what you need to know uh, about Obamacare as you get ready to cast your vote in about 27, 26 days, something like that. So uh, very important stuff going on. We're happy to take our act on the road, packed up all the audio gear, went up there and got some interviews, although you can tell it's definitely a road show. The audio is not uh, what you're used to, so apologize for that in advance. So uh, I, those three interviews are all full-segment, 13-minute interviews, so I didn't want to have to take away from them or, or splice out anything or take away from what they were kind enough to share with us in terms of thoughts. So I'm going to fill this first segment with some healthcare news stuff that's that's different from that, and probably the biggest thing that's out there uh, right now in the news is this uh, issue, again, outside the presidential elections, talking in healthcare here, is this recent stuff that has gone on with the EpiPen and all of the price gouging and stuff that's gone on with that. So in case you don't know, what's an EpiPen? Well, an EpiPen is this this 
automated drug delivery device that delivers uh, epinephrine or adrenaline, you might know it as, uh, which, is, uh, which can be a life-saving drug if you happen to have an anaphylactic reaction, like say your child has a peanut allergy or you're allergic to bee stings or something like that. That means if you go into any sort of high-risk setting, um, it is a life-or-death decision that you're going to carry an EpiPen with you and probably two EpiPens with you. Uh, and so it's a drug that if you need it, you need it. It doesn't matter what it costs. You're going to pay that money to make sure that you have that drug, and that's relevant in the, uh, in the conversation that's coming up here. So um, what's going on with this? Well, the, the rights to EpiPen were acquired by a company called uh, Mylar, something like that, um, and uh, they were um, – they had the, they acquired this about, I don't know, 17 or 18 years ago, something like that, and uh, at that point – um, they were um, getting they were not getting rich at, at that price but what 's happened over the last um, you know several years is that the price of this has gone from maybe a hundred dollars for a single epipen up to six hundred dollars for what they call an EpiPen 2-pack because you can't buy just one EpiPen anymore. You have to buy two, and so they're $300 each, so it's $600. And the question has come up here recently uh, as to why the price of, of something that costs really probably 10 or $20 to produce. The value of the epinephrine that's in the EpiPen per pen is probably a dollar or two at the most, and the automated mechanism for delivering that EpiPen dose, which can be done. You don't have to be a healthcare professional, obviously. You just jam it on your leg and push the button, and it all happens. Um, but that delivery mechanism probably doesn't cost more than 10 or $15 to produce. And so they've got something here that costs you know, no more than 20 or $25 to produce that they're charging $600 for. And this has been in the news lately, and there have been congressional hearings, and I'm going to play you a couple of sound bites from that. And, uh, you know, there's just been a lot of fuss going on uh, about, you know, how awful this all is. Uh, and that's all well and good, but, um, you know, I, I had the privilege of writing an editorial for our state society uh, uh, journal, uh, and so I had a chance to do a little research on exactly why it is that these drug prices were going up, and I thought I would share that with you to get us to the first segment and then get us on to the good stuff, which will be Brian Blaze from Mercatus Institute and Mike Hamilton from uh, the Heartland Institute, uh, who was going to give us an update on certificate of need. But we'll get to that in about six minutes. Uh, in the meantime, I'm just going to fill you in on what you need to know about the EpiPen and why these prices have gone up and where the real blame needs to fall. So for starters, let's just go ahead and play a couple of uh, clips here um, about, uh, you know, what's going on in Congress about that. So the first clip you're going to hear, this is all a bunch of grandstanding, right? This is all congressmen playing holier than thou, having hauled the CEO of Mylan Pharmaceuticals uh, uh, in, in before Congress. And so, and so here's what they had to say. Modern medicine has advanced in a way that's beneficial to patients. Uh, but to have uh, companies like yours take advantage of this situation, take advantage of these people who are really in need of this medication. This is Representative Stephen Lynch from Massachusetts. To something that is uh, that that we are better than than that, and I, I would hope that corporate America, that the pharmaceutical industry, is better than that. I mean, look, in the, in the last few seconds, tell me what 
Um, you know, how do, how do we get to this point that we have a culture like this in corporate America that wants to uh, stick it to consumers? So a culture like this in corporate America that wants to stick it to consumers. Now, look, I have no particular love for the pharmaceutical companies. I am certainly not here defending the pharmaceutical companies. But if Congress were serious about trying to figure out where the cause of high drug prices are, uh, they need to not waste their time grandstanding in front of a pharmaceutical CEO. They need to go look in the mirror. Because the third-party payment system for pharmaceuticals, prescription drugs, is probably one of the most complicated, if not the most complicated part of the healthcare system. It takes this third-party payer system and makes it so complicated and so impossible to follow and so impossible to understand that we have problems with the prices going up not only because of monopolies, and we do have monopolies. That's part of the problem. We have an FDA with a 4,000-case backlog of generic drug applications. So in the case of the EpiPen, there is only one major manufacturer in the segment. There are two other major companies that want to put EpiPens on the market, but one of them, the FDA, has not approved their application yet, and the other one had the product out for a while but was forced to withdraw it from the market for some, I think, fairly unimportant concerns. So that left the EpiPen all by itself, and so, of course, what's going to happen? Well, the prices are going to go up. Now, I think everybody understands that part of the puzzle. Everyone understands that there is a lack of competition for drugs, for many drugs that only have one manufacturer, because the regulatory environment is so severe that for many drugs, EpiPen included, there is essentially only one manufacturer. So, of course, they can raise prices at will, and there's a component of that and I think everybody understands that. That's why Samsung can't suddenly tr- you know, charge $20,000 for a flat-screen TV and Ford can't charge $100,000 for uh, a Mustang convertible. I think we all get that. But the part that, that is not as easy to understand is all of the complicated uh, infrastructure that is in place that exists between the third-party payer, the drug manufacturer, and the patient. And it's this variation on third-party payer. There's a term that you need to know, a term that you need to learn if you don't know it already, and it's called the pharmacy benefit manager. And this was something that grew out of the mail-order pharmacies that started to get used uh, 10 or 15 years ago, maybe a little longer, um, where people could get cheaper prices for drugs if they got a 90-day prescription that you sent away for and they mailed it to you versus going to your pharmacy one month at a time. All that was well and good, but these these mail-order pharmacies grew into something far bigger. And finally, the insurance companies figured out that they could outsource the entire benefit program for drugs to these third-party pharmacy benefit managers. And then things started getting really complicated, and I didn't even realize this until I researched this. And I don't pretend for a minute to understand this fully, but there are actually rebate programs, rebate programs between the drug manufacturers and the pharmacy benefit managers. So in many cases, EpiPen included, there was a a kickback. I don't know what else to call it. I call, they called it a rebate. Okay, fine. Uh, really, a kickback to the pharmacy benefit managers in, in odd cases, like where the copay for a drug exceeds its cash price. Or in the case of EpiPen, you know, they were actually competing 
with competitors in the market not to provide low prices for consumers, but to provide high rebates slash kickbacks to the pharmacy benefit manager. So there was a, there was a point in time uh, before one of the major manufacturers had to withdraw their EpiPen type product from the market that prices were still going up. It was it was EpiPen versus its competitor, and yet prices were going up. Why were prices going up? Because the competition did not exist at the level of the patient to provide the lowest possible price. The the competition existed for the favor of the pharmacy benefit manager because they were only going to put one epinephrine injector on their formulary and it was either going to be EpiPen or their competition so they were competing for the favor of the pharmacy benefit manager not for the favor of the patient through low prices and so you have this horribly convoluted system with horrible perverse incentives uh, even to the point where Mylan, and I, I couldn't remember the name before I blanked on I kept saying Mylar it's Mylan, had to pay a 465 million dollar settlement to CMS. Why? Because they were paying the wrong rebate. They were not paying high enough rebates to CMS uh, because they had EpiPen classified as a generic instead of a brand name. That's all the time we have in the first segment. Stick around. The next three segments are all really neat interviews from the State Policy Network. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Thanks very much for joining us today. The Doctor's Lounge is broadcast Thursday mornings on America's Web Radio and sponsored by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation. We support freedom of choice in health care. We support the ability of your physician and you to discuss your health care problems without any interference from third-party uh, entities such as insurers and regulators and legislators and that sort of thing. And uh, together, uh, Dr. Scherz and I bring you the best 
in healthcare policy chat radio. So this week, uh, the Doctors' Lounge is on the road. We are in Nashville, Tennessee, actually my old stomping ground. I trained here at Vanderbilt. Uh, so I'm delighted to be back here at the State Policy Network uh, meeting, uh, something held every year. This is our third trip here uh, with the Doctors' Lounge, actually second trip here. And uh, we're delighted to have Brian Blaze with us today. Um, he is a leading scholar from the Mercatus Center at uh, George Mason University. So, Brian, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, Dr. Mike. Thanks for having me on. So there was a, a sort of a meeting before the meeting, as it were, um, yesterday before the tr- meeting truly got kicked off today, talking about um, a variety of stuff that you guys present so well. And, uh, and I heard your talk and said, this is something that I think the listeners really need to hear. And I think there were two topics that, that you really uh, laid out beautifully. The first was Medicaid, and the second one was the exchanges. Um, so I'm just going to let you go ahead and talk about where we stand um, with Obamacare and, and all of these various issues. So start wherever you like. Great. Well, thanks for having me on. I spend most of my time uh, as a senior research fellow at Mercatus studying the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. And I also wrote my dissertation on Medicaid financing, so I spent a lot of my time wor- working through problems um, with the Medicaid program and thinking about ways that um, we can better provide health care to lower-income people. Uh, just, I think yesterday, uh, former President Clinton called Obamacare the craziest system in the world. Wasn't that something? That, uh, that was a conveniently placed uh, quote. Yeah, I know. I wish I knew about it before I spoke yesterday. I would have included the clip. Yes. Last week, uh, the New York Times had a story on the, how Obamacare's health care law would need to change in order to survive. And that story referenced what's going on in the Obamacare exchanges. The exchanges were places where people were supposed to go, be able to shop in a highly competitive environment for health insurance. And it's turned out that the exchanges aren't performing nearly up to the expectations that the supporters of Obamacare, the president, um, key Democrat members of Congress told us was going was to exist um, when they passed the law in 2010. In uh, 2016, there are about 10 million people signed up in exchanges that were established through Obamacare. It was expected when the law passed that there would be about 24 million people signed up. So we're less than half of the number of expected enrollees. And the number of people that have signed up are much sicker um, and older than than expected. And insurance companies have ended up losing significant money selling products through the exchanges. And that's led them to do two things. One, a lot of them have exited the exchanges. So three big insurance companies, Humana, United Healthcare, and Aetna, have largely pulled out of the exchanges. Um, 17 of 23 co-ops, which were started with funding through the Affordable Care Act, have collapsed because they've made such sizable losses. So we're seeing much less competition in the individual insurance markets than existed prior to Obamacare. It's actually my, uh, my possible that one-third of counties, there's only going to be a single insurer participating in the exchanges um, in 2017. So uh, to sort of sum up the effect of all this, right, we have a, a plan that initially promised lower prices, more competition that was going to lead to those lower prices, uh, a prediction by the president himself that this was going to lower premiums for a typical family of four by some $2,500 per year, um, and 
those of us on the other side of the fence were making certain predictions regarding the inaccuracy of those claims. And now it's turning out to be that, that none of the promises that they have, have put forth or put forth years ago are coming to fruition. And in fact, the opposite is true. Premiums are going up. Competition is going down. Right, these co-ops, which are supposed to be in effect additional insurance plans, right, kind of patient-owned yep. sort of insurance plans, right, they're falling by the wayside. We're down to how many now? You said it looks like six. We're down to six, and, and they eight. keep dropping. We have a few more drop every every several months. So, um, so why do you think this is all happening like this? None of the promises are being met. So the main changes that Obamacare made were to the individual insurance market, and it had a whole bunch of mandates that insurance had to provide, and the mandates increased the price of insurance across the board. It also included pricing restrictions, so insurers could no longer charge different premiums to people based on their health status. So the sickest person that applies charged the same premium as the healthiest person that applies um, given that they're the same age. Insurers could only vary premiums based on age. Prior to Obamacare, so it's naturally people who are just before retirement and go on Medicare spend about six times more on health care than young adults. Obamacare restricted that variation to three to one, essentially making, with the way these provisions interact, making insurance much more expensive for people that were young and healthy. So let's go over that math for a minute. So the idea is pre-Obamacare, you had young, healthy people that paid lower rates. You had older folks who statistically are going to be sicker. They pay higher rates. And I think that differential pre-Obamacare was like 5 to 1, wasn't right. it? 5, 6 to 1. 5 or 6 to 1. So the idea being is that if you are older, you're legitimately got a higher risk of putting health care claims on the books. And so insurers were allowed to charge more. And by bringing this down from 5 to 1 to 3 to 1, I think the idea was make the young, healthy people pay forward to the older and 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 i think a key point is that states were in charge of regulating their insurance markets so most states had a five to one age rating ban or no age rating ban at all some states went to community rating like um uh where everyone was charged the same uh new york washington state kentucky tried that and in those states insurance markets collapsed um, because of the adverse selection that was that resulted in people who were older and sicker being the only ones who purchased the plan, and you get the the spiral of rising premiums. When premiums go up, the coverage is even less attractive to young and healthy people. Obamacare contained two primary mechanisms to try to induce young and healthy people to really act act against their economic self interest and purchase the coverage. One is the individual mandate, which is the tax penalty for people that don't purchase the approved um, require the approved insurance. In 2016, the penalty was six hundred the greater of six hundred and ninety five dollars, or about two and a half percent of your income. And it's the it's the year that the penalty reached its peak amount. So it was thought that in 2016, we would sort of get a stable Obamacare system. There were also large subsidies available, particularly to lower income people, um, to reduce their premiums and to reduce the deductibles um, that they that come with the Obamacare coverage. And one of the things that we've seen is that deductibles are much higher um, for Obamacare plans than existed in the individual market before and that also exist for employer coverage. Um, now, there's nothing wrong with a high deductible you know, insurance policy that's linked to an HSA. I'm sure that's something that you know, doctor that, patient's care promotes. We have that um, for sure, and we have that in our family too. We have a high deductible and an HSA. It makes a lot of sense for people to buy 
insurance products that look like that where you're actually seeing and if you see prices and people are um, uh, cost conscious yeah. underneath that. It incentivizes us to shop for generic medicines when we think it's okay and if we think it's worth the money for the brand name, fine. But it's a, it's a free market-based decision. I can do whatever it is I choose to. The problem um, with all the with Obamacare is all of the benefit mandates um, put upward pressure on premiums and insurers could only only wanted to raise premiums so high, so they also coupled those with extremely high deductible products. So there's really not a lot of choice for people um, who purchase the coverage. And as it turns out, um, the subsidies have have worked to some extent in enrolling people with income below about 200% of the poverty line, which is $24,000 for an individual. But for people that have income above that amount, which is the vast majority of people in the middle class, they have um, largely shunned the coverage that's available to the exchange and haven't purchased. And that has left the uh, risk pools consisting of either really sick and old or older people who expect to expect to incur a lot of health care expenses or people who receive these very large subsidies. You don't have enough young, healthy, middle-class people in the risk pools um, to create a stable insurance market, and that is the key problem with Obamacare. Those people are missing, um, and without those people, you have a dearth of competition and you have rapidly increasing premiums and you have what I think is both economically and politically an untenable situation. Well, I mean, it seems to me that those folks at the 300 to 400% of poverty level range, number one, there's not enough subsidies, right, to cover the sky-high premium. And the second is, and I think you mentioned this yesterday as well, is that those folks are probably, you know, have an employer and they're going to get employer-based health insurance, true? That's right. So most people who are um, uh, in the middle class and higher income get their insurance through the workplace. There was a concern that because of the availability of the subsidies in Obamacare that employers would drop coverage um, and that that would create a large expense for taxpayers as you had um, uh, a lot of enrollees with these pretty generous subsidies. And what we haven't seen that. We've seen some well, employers drop coverage, but not nearly what was expected. And I think in part that's because the exchanges are offering such a inferior product for people who don't qualify for the large subsidies. And employers, employees are probably saying to their employers, we don't want to go into Obamacare. And there's more pressure on employers to actually offer insurance um, than was anticipated when the law passed. And I don't think anybody predicted that. I mean, I don't think either side of the equation predicted that. I mean, we. I think we all talked about employers dumping yep. employees onto exchanges. I think on our side of the fence, we all predicted that. I don't know that anybody. I, it, it, t- it takes me by surprise, at least, that the the exchange product is so poor that we didn't see that dumping going on. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought I've been studying um, the Affordable Care Act for many years, and I've always been sort of a skeptic of the economics behind it. And um, I am surprised at how badly and how quick it seems to be unwinding that you even have, you know. Organizations like the New York Times saying, "If this isn't changed, yes, you know it has it's, to change." Yeah. Um, and and you know, President Clinton calling it the craziest system in the world because it has it has raised costs for most people in the middle class and for politicians who so often try to appeal to the middle class. Yeah. Obamacare has clearly made the middle class worse off. If you don't get coverage to the workplace, you now have an individual market where you may only have a choice from one provider for a relatively expensive plan. And if you don't purchase that plan, you have to pony up several hundred, if not thousands of dollars um, to the government. Well, there was a, a slide somewhere 
and I'm not sure if it was your lectures or somebody else's that said, I think we're up to a $4,800 or, or even higher than that, maybe $6,000 increase. I think the, the swing yeah. between Obama's prediction of a $2,500 drop in price and the actual increase in price that the swing is close to eight thousand dollars for a family of four per year. Yeah, so uh, we've looked at sort of the price for insurance that's available to families, the average premiums for family coverage that they get through the workplace. And the president said it would go down by twenty five hundred dollars on average. And between two thousand nine and two thousand sixteen, that's actually gone up by close to five thousand dollars. So a huge swing in what was expected. And the president never should have promised that. It was a total. I mean, he made many promises, that was one of the worst promises they made. Along with, if you like your plan, you can keep your plan. If you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. I mean, we sort of, everyone knew that there was all this insurance that wasn't going to be able to comply with the provisions of Obamacare and people would lose. And it took the media, really, three and a half years until people actually received the cancellation notices Oh yes, to pay attention to that story. Exactly. Alright, we'll pick this up in the next segment. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak, with special guest Brian Blaze from the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. So, Brian, we were sort of talking about uh, the exchanges and Medicaid and all that, so I'm just going to let you pick up where we left off. We were kind of talking about how we have all these crazy price swings between what was predicted for premiums and what's actually turned out to happen over the last three and a half years. Yes, yeah, so the, the two main coverage expansions in Obamacare were the exchanges, which we talked about, are performing much worse than was expected, and we're seeing premium increases. They are averaging 25% across the country for next year. So less, less choice for individuals, much higher premiums, 
Um, the exchanges are not in a good place, and there's going to have to be something done on the exchanges next year, largely because not enough young and healthy individuals have signed up for coverage. The administration is really trying to do outreach campaigns. It, it looks like they're that they believe the main problem with Obamacare is that they just haven't advertised its benefits enough. So they're really going out to young people, trying to advertise their benefits and seeing if you know they can enroll individuals in the program um, to to better the risk pools and to create a stable system. I am highly skeptical that that's going to work. Well, their premiums are so high. I mean, you know, if you're a, a 20-something, you're not thinking about paying a whole bunch of money for health insurance and you don't have the money to spare. And, you know, I guess they didn't do the math well enough because the premiums are so high that, you know, I think the penalty looks more attractive than having to pay the high premiums, true? And if you are a relatively young person who has not used much health care and you look at a policy, the cheapest policies are called bronze policies that you can purchase the exchange, and they average a $6,000 deductible. So if you're thinking about, you know, a premium that might be $4,000, a deductible of $6,000, you're making the calculus in your head, am I going to spend more than $10,000 on health care this year? And for the vast majority of people, they're not going to, and they're making the rational decision not to purchase the insurance. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you need, you, there needs to, we need to be able to create products that individuals value, right, and to return health insurance to what's actually insurance. So if you have um, sort of a uh, ex- really expen- an accident, which is a low probability event, that's what insurance is for. So you have insurance to cover sort of the high unexpected um, uh, cost that can come with uh, you know, an illness or an accident that you don't anticipate. Um, and let the market forces, which I know what your organization, uh, Dr. Mike, yeah. is sort of leading the way in, um, letting markets and uh, doctors working with their patients on what actual prices are and comparing um, the value of services and having real, I mean, these are often there aren't going to be easy conversations, but what, 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 is best for the patient and um, and to make that patient really engaged in what's going on with their health care. Right, because right now none of that is happening. There's no price transparency with any of these things. And uh, and, and so, yeah, that's what happens. So, but, but the politicians brag, right, about, uh, about the increased number of insured patients, right? And if you could see me doing this, I'd be putting my quotes up, my finger quotes up for insured or, or covered because... In many cases, because of the high deductible, the card doesn't really mean anything except to give a politician a chance to brag that folks have a card because it's not really usable insurance. But correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, but most of the increase in covered lives really came from Medicaid expansion, true? You're right. The vast majority of the people that, and I'll put this, that have the insurance cards um, in their wallets have gotten uh, coverage through Medicaid. And I think we, we put way too much emphasis in health policy on whether people have an insurance card. Uh, it is, I think it's probably because it's an easy metric. That's right. Uh, it's hard to know, um, to measure health outcomes and sort of quality of care and access to care. Um, that Those are harder metrics and... Um, uh, we sort of overly rely on, well, how many people have insurance cards? And Medicaid historically has been a very low-functioning 
uh, health care program. So there's lots of studies that show that people with Medicaid have worse outcomes than people with private insurance, sometimes worse outcomes than people without insurance, that they have access problems, um, that they tend to overutilize the emergency room for non-emergency care, and that's a terrible place um, to receive basic health care services. Um, there was a study that came out from the University of Oregon, or not from the University of Oregon, from economists at Harvard, Dartmouth, and MIT that looked at an Oregon Medicaid expansion that happened a few years prior to uh, the implementation of uh, Obamacare's expansion. And there was a random assignment of people into Medicaid. They had a limited number of spots, people that won the lottery, gained access to the Medicaid program, people that didn't win the lottery, um, didn't, and it served as a control group to sort of measure the impact of Medicaid on these expansion enrollees. And they looked at three measures of health, blood pressure, blood sugar, and cholesterol. And they didn't find any improvement in people um, that gained access to Medicaid on any of those three measures. They did find some benefits on mental health, um, but sort of on the sort of things that you would expect um, Medicaid could help with, right, blood pressure, um, cholesterol and blood sugar, no effect. They also did a follow-up study that estimated um, that Medicaid recipients only placed 20 to 40 cents of value for each dollar of government spending um, that they received through the program, which to me suggests we're wasting a lot of money on the program um, through this expansion if enrollees don't, um, uh, don't obtain much value from it and we're not seeing um, discernible uh, health improvements from them. Maybe we should think about uh, redesigning how we provide uh, government assistance to lower-income people for their health care and allow states to vary their approaches. So states sort of allow for true federalism where states are allowed to take different approaches and then learn from each other rather than sort of a one-size-fits-all approach from Washington um, that really leads to a lot of unaccountability and spending that doesn't produce high value. The one other thing I'm going to say on the Medicaid expansion is um, on the spending side, last year, government experts at uh, Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services projected that the per enrollee cost of the expansion would be about $4,300. <laughs> One year later, um, they got data on what the actual cost was, and it was $6,400 per enrollee. That's a 49% cost overrun in one year. In the aggregate, that's almost $20 billion based on the number of enrollees um, over and above what was expected. And I think the reason for that is because the federal government is providing states with a 100% reimbursement to states for the expansion population. That means Everything is being paid for by the federal government. States, when they're negotiating um, payment rates with insurers who are managing Medicaid managed care, um, have no incentive to be wise stewards of taxpayer dollars. We have seen sort of the key, one of the key beneficiaries of Obamacare are health insurance companies, and that health insurance, um, health insurer stock prices have grown much higher um, over the past um, over the past six years and sort of the general increase in stock prices and there's a big question where is all this money going well you guys talked about how the you know the perverse incentives are in place to gain the system right and and so these uh, the states collect this provider tax right or a provider fee and turn around and spend it on the hospitals again so that it ups the spending number, which ups the amount of money that the federal government matches or something like that, right? right? You can explain it better than I can. So you, so you, it's one of the, 
natural result of the federal government providing an open-ended reimbursement of state spending. So here's how the provider tax works in simple terms. You're the provider. I'm the state. I say, all right, I'm going to tax you $100. I then take that $100 and spend it back right back on you. That doesn't doesn't make any sense as an economic transaction, right? It's, yeah. It seems like we're both we're both in the same position as we are before. But the federal government comes in and they they see the hundred dollars that I spent on you. The average state reimbursement is sixty percent, so they now give me sixty dollars for what's really just a fake expenditure, right? It's just an accounting gimmick. And then I take that sixty dollars as a state and I provide some of it to the provider. Um, I can, you know, provide, I can fill in state budget holes somewhere else. And really, who's paying for this? It's a total lack of transparency. It's the federal taxpayers. And, I mean, when the federal, in Obamacare, with 100% federal reimbursement of state spending, we are taking what was already a bad incentive for states and just making it exponentially worse. So, yeah, like you said, there's just, there's no break on cost controls. It's just all kind of funny money going back and forth and a bunch of, you know, ink on a page or pixels on a screen in terms of the, where the money's going and it's going back and forth and it's just kind of churning, it, it sounds is, and like. It, and it concentrates state efforts. They employ um, lots of people on contingency fee basis to try to game um, the reimbursement rules rather than, you know, spending that time and effort concentrating on getting better value for their Medicaid program. And let me say one other thing on um, the Medicaid expansion. The newly eligible enrollees are predominantly working-age adults. The federal government is now um, creating a major bias in the way it treats the new enrollees um, versus the way it treats previously eligible Medicaid enrollees like lower-income children, pregnant women, and the disabled. It's creating a large incentive for states to take resources away from treating um, pregnant women, lower-income children, and the disabled, and pour more resources into sort of these newly eligible um, adult enrollees that, for the most part, are single single men. Okay, so I, I remember this from yesterday because the, the thought occurred to me that you're actually the, taking money away from the people who need it the most, right? These were people who were on the Medicaid rolls when the qualifications were more stringent pre-expansion, and you're pushing it on to people who might need it less only because they, they didn't fit Medicaid until the criteria were expanded. And I think you mentioned that some of these folks actually came from employer-based insurance, right? So you weren't really, you weren't adding to the total number of people covered. Right. You were just kind of moving them around between silos, as we call them. So it's a uh, good good data point. To, um, I'm glad you mentioned CrowdOut. One of the best estimates we have of CrowdOut came from economist Jonathan Gruber, who ma- made himself <laughs> yeah. calling the American people stupid. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, but he, he used to do very good empirical work, and he estimated a 60% CrowdOut rate. So of 10 people that gained access to Medicaid from an expansion, six of them had j- just replaced private coverage. Crazy. And so and little wonder then, I guess, that, that Bill Clinton was caught in a rare moment of uh, candor, shall we say, uh, when he made the comments yesterday that said that uh, that Obamacare was what? Did he say crazy? Was that the word? The I think craziest he's, system in the world. The craziest system in the world, uh, where because at the same time you're, you're bringing more enrollees in, 
by technically giving them coverage, but you're taking the folks who, who have already had insurance that were just barely hanging on and making their insurance unaffordable. And I would say, uh, to sort of add on to what the former president said, it wasn't like the American health care system was very good prior to Obamacare. I, I think still, we all agree. It was still a crazy system. I yeah. mean, there were lots of inequities in the federal tax treatment and you know, people getting huge benefits if they got insurance through the workplace and no tax benefit if they didn't get insurance out of the workplace and all the rules and regs and spending that came with Medicare and uh, Medicaid. Um, and what we've done now is sort of lay, we've layer on top the craziest um, healthcare system on top of what was already a fairly crazy healthcare system, and we just have a lot of a lot of problems. And I think it's great the work that um, Docs for Patients um, Care does, and other groups that are really promoting more free market solutions to get rid of and unwind so many of these government programs that have led to all these perverse incentives that lead to so much spending that does patients little value. Indeed. Okay, well, I think we've reached the end of the segment. You've been listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio with special guest Brian Blaze from the Mercatus Center. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. We are on the road again in uh, Nashville, Tennessee at the State Policy Network meeting. And uh, for this segment, I have for me a uh, very special guest, Mike Hamilton from the Heartland Institute. Uh, we enjoy uh, a great working relationship with the Heartland Institute. Uh, they have a wonderful publication, The Healthcare News. And uh, if you listen to the Doctor's Lounge and read The Healthcare News, you'll know all you need to know about healthcare policy and, and uh, free market solutions to the problems facing our healthcare system. So, Mike, once again, uh, thanks so much for uh, being on. We kind of grabbed you uh, 
out of the lobby, and uh, you kindly agreed to come in. So thanks again. Oh, Mike, thanks so much for having me. It is a joy to be back with you here in the Doctor's Lounge. And I couldn't agree with you more. I do think that the Doctor Patient Care Foundation and the Heartland Institute, we I think I feel like we got the market cornered here, right? I mean, just it's your one-stop shop. You're, we're, yes. we're, we're talking about all of it, all these free market solutions and, uh, and, and figuring out all kinds of ways to get, uh, to get inhibitors uh, to innovation out of the way. Yep. It's all about knocking down the barriers and showing folks, you know, a better way and making it more attractive so they'll make that choice uh, to choose solutions that, you know, get the third party out of the way. It sure is. And I, I love the body of work that Doctor Patient Care Foundation is producing. Big fan of this radio show. Uh, it's so educational uh, and it just covers the gamut. Well, you, you guys are capable of being in the weeds to talk about some, some government regulations that uh, maybe the average patient uh, doesn't understand. But then you can turn around uh, right there and you can talk about uh, specifically how to improve the ordinary patient's life uh, with uh, with things like price transparency and direct pay. And I, I, I love it. It's a good thing. So um, on the way up here, we were talking about uh, some things that have, uh, that you're kind of excited about, about 2017 and, and sort of a, a preliminary kind of strategic plan. So uh, tell us what's on your mind. Yeah, I'd love to. So I love coming to uh, events like this. And I, I know that we have your event coming up here uh, pretty soon. I'm lo- looking forward to, to that as well because it's sort of like we're all suiting up for battle, waiting for these 2017 uh, legislative sessions to convene. And when, and when they do, um, I think our side, Mike, is, is really ready for this. I mean, we we're ready for battle. And there's a, there's a few different fronts here. One of the ones I'm most excited about is the potential to actually uh, get some of these certificate of need laws or con laws uh, repealed um, or heavily reformed in a number of states that uh, that sort of laid the infrastructure uh, for these uh, last year, but they, they couldn't quite close the deal on them. And so we want to get involved and help them out. Well, you know, there's a, there's a piece of this process, which until I got familiar with this, that I just didn't understand, which is that uh, to get something through a state legislature uh, is a multi-year process because most state legislatures only meet for a few months out of the year, say the first quarter of the year. And so 90 days when the legislature is in session is only so much time to do stuff. And then, you know, when, when the legislative session ends, everything kind of goes into a deep freeze uh, until the next year, uh, and then the process renews. So these things are multi-year process. So you're thinking that this year may be the year for some of this. I think it will be. I mean, there were there were 36 states as of last year, actually just uh, before last summer, as of last spring, that had these certificate of need laws still on the books. New Hampshire, a lot of effort was expended by a lot of, of groups, well-equipped groups. Um, with all that effort, though, we only saw the one state, New Hampshire, repeal uh, uh, yeah, repeal back its law, and they even uh, replaced it with a, with a couple of different things here. Um, but there are a lot of states, Virginia, uh, it, uh, Georgia is going to be looking at it again, uh, South Carolina, North Carolina, uh, West Virginia, a law, state lawmaker out there told me, he, he, had an, he sent me an email, he said, oh, I would love nothing more than to repeal our certificate of need law. So, um, but essentially what these what these laws do is they require a private medical facility operator, instead, uh, if he chooses, he wants to invest his capital and expand uh, his hospital, or even just add, a, in some states, add a single bed to his hospital or maybe he wants to renovate part of one wing in his hospital and it's, and it's going to be a high dollar project 
he's not allowed to just do that. He has to go before a bureaucratic uh, state board and then justify um, why he would like to make these improvements and uh, either improving the quality of the facilities for with which to serve patients, or he has to justify um, why he wants to actually uh, put more beds in so that he can serve the patients. Now, that's an expensive process. They're non-refundable application fees, uh, and it's a, it's a huge uh, barrier um, to entry uh, for new competitors who would want to come into a market. Um, and, of course, as we know, when there's competition, that's going to improve the quality. It's going to drive down prices. Absolutely. And, and some of the cost, you know, we had our own personal story with Certificate of Need with an ambulatory surgery center. And, yeah, it took us 12 months and $100,000 to open a two-operating-room surgery center, mm-hmm. and that was 10 years ago. Our case had to go all the way to the state Supreme Court, and we didn't settle. We won. And as a result, all the other suits against other up-and-coming ambulatory surgery centers were dropped. Um, that is that a huge 10, win. Yeah, it's a huge win. It certainly was. It, it sort of paved the way for everybody else to... To, to, to open their place. And in the end, yes, you know, when you can expand like this, I mean, our experience has been we do it faster, better, cheaper. Uh, but, of course, and, and this piece of certificate of need loss kind of blew my mind that as part of the process, your competitors get to weigh in, right, yeah. on whether or not you get to, you know, that's like asking, you know, Chevrolet if Pontiac can build a new model <laughs> right. that competes with theirs. I mean, that that, sense. It is a, a mind-blowing, almost mind-numbing aspect of the law here. I mean, you, you wonder how, we, uh, how we're not even in a worse situation than we are. But what's really interesting here, and this is, this is pretty deceptive, um, is that the initial justification given by uh, proponents of certificate of need laws, is uh, you're starting to see that phase out a little bit. The initial reason for it was, well, this is going to help us control costs. But now uh, now that uh, you know, Congress in 1986, I believe it was, repealed its uh, certificate of need mandate um, because it realized that even back then, uh, th- this law is not going to achieve its results. And so and so now that, uh, that all this research has come out by a lot of organizations that are here with us this week, and we're, we're all... Uh, uh, shouting the clarion call here that these laws hurt patients and they hurt physicians. So now what they've done is they've moved the goalposts. And so now proponents of these certificate of need laws um, are feeding us a line about how these laws are actually going to improve the quality because uh, we're going to funnel all of these patients uh, to just the few hospitals and few doctors to give these doctors a lot of practice. Right. And there's been some medical literature to support some of that if you misapply it. Mm. You know, and, and it's a classic sort of intellectual bait and switch or mm. a shell game, I like to call it, <laughs> where, you know, you can take, like in, in head and neck surgery, there was an article that said if you performed over 25 thyroidectomies a year, the, the kicker is that the threshold to become experienced doesn't require that you have that level of funneling. Mm. And if, if hospitals want to build centers of excellence, then don't do it with a law behind you because then it doesn't matter if you're excellent or not, yeah. you know, because you're not competing with anything. If you're going to build what we call in medicine a center of excellence for whatever medical diagnosis or, or region of the body that you choose, build it and compete with everybody else, mm-hmm. and then everybody's quality gets better. Well, I think I think it's a great idea. That's a really great point. And to go back to one point you said earlier, um, is that a lot of these state legislatures in which they have these upcoming fights, and we really could see the victories in these com laws, um, they do have a you know, very uh, compressed or, or short uh, terms in which to get these done. I remember that um, you know con reform was on the table in Georgia uh, last session. Yes. And then uh, most states have some kind of a they don't all call it the same thing, but a crossover deadline. And so right. the session will continue to go on. For 
for, for weeks and weeks. Um, but the initial deadline in order to get a, a bill passed out of one chamber to the other uh, is, is on a certain date. And so, um, uh, you, you know, you may think that, oh, well, my state lawmaker has until, uh, say, you know, April to right. to get this thing taken care of. Well, no, it, it's insidious. Yeah, you, We really need watchdogs out there, folks, uh, doctors and, and policy analysts and and, uh, and just patients who are concerned and they want the best health care in their state to be attentive to this uh, because that deadline may be coming a couple of months before the session even expires. And uh, and so that's that's what we're doing. That's what we're really gearing up for in 2017. Well, it, it's there's a I, I think a lot of these large medical centers that are driving or continue to support these certificate of need laws. You know, they also offer this false argument about the rural hospital uh, and this myth that if you open up, you know, competition to a rural hospital, that they'll lose business and and therefore they'll fire people. Well, that's ridiculous because if if those folks are getting fired from the big hospital, they're getting hired by the surgery center <laughs> that was that is allegedly putting them out of business in the first place. Right. So if you're opening centers, how can you lose? You know, they're just losing their employment monopoly is what they're losing. That's right. But it's got there, there's no argument to me that suggests that they do that. And in fact, there's even a more sinister situation going in, in, in that where large medical centers are opening satellites. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're saying that they can open the satellites protected by CON and or at least have the clout to get their CONs passed, right. Right, which is the real truth of the matter. Um, but they're actually just, they're, they're relegating these rural hospitals to triage centers. Yeah. And what they want to do is just feed the mothership. So you may think that you're getting your gallbladder out at your local rural hospital, but under the new paradigm that the big networks want to create, this is just going to, you're not going to get your gallbladder done there. You're going to get worked up there, and then they're going to make you drive 50 miles down the road to the big city and get it done there. Yeah. And, uh, and, and there's really nothing to suggest that that makes care better. And and it's a real problem. And, and it's, you know, the the con laws, the first, uh, I guess, line of, uh, of attack is not upon patients directly. Patients uh, feel the the bad end of this thing um, via their physicians, via their hospital uh, providers, right? Um, but uh, but it this is this is one of many many areas in which we have laws on the books that at the end of the day, whether it uh, it immediately and directly constricts the patient's ability to obtain access to care, um, or it uh, or it does it indirectly, through, such as through a con law, um, it's patients who suffer. It is it's our uh, the healthcare of the patient of the end user um, that uh, that is at stake, and those patients should be empowered to make these consumer driven uh, healthcare choices. We we want patients to be free uh, to to engage in a relationship with their doctor directly, and that's why I want, another thing we're focused on this year is direct primary care and uh, and and that's just maybe the, the most popular of the up and coming direct pay models but uh, we're, we're fans of cash practices we're fans of, of any sort of a, of a discount that um, doctors will give to patients um, not because they're being charitable but because it's just good business in order to, uh, to to charge a patient less for paying cash when you don't have to go through insurance well that's right and it, and it lowers the overhead tremendously. I mean, we see that. I see that every day mm-hmm. in my practice, Mike, which is that we have to maintain an army of billers and coders and collectors and people that will continue to push for us to get our third-party payment. Mm-hmm. If we get that payment immediately, I don't have to pay those folks to do that job anymore, which means I can charge less. Uh, and so then you get you know open competition, you know, just like you do for the. You know, the price of cars and TVs and everything else. I mean, it, it really can work the same way. 
Um, and, and, you know, I say that with a little personal fear of trepidation because if, if, you know, somebody died and made us king and we, we did that tomorrow, <laughs> I'd be a little scared about exactly what was going to happen the next day or the day after that. But, you know, I have faith in the end it would even out and uh, I would do it. You know, markets markets clear. You know, there, you, when, when there's an obstruction in the way of a free market, of a doctor-patient relationship, that's when you start to see all of these nasty unintended consequences come out about, well, you know, the, this person jacking up his prices too high, and, uh, well, this person couldn't get the care they wanted to. Um, usually when that's going on, then um, then you often hear big government advocates say, like, oh, well, this is the free market's fault. This is why oh, yeah, we have yeah, this yeah. problem. And the fact is that markets always clear. They always do work themselves out when they are allowed to do so. And so, uh, and so you, you you might be nervous, Mike. That's because you're humble. But I would, would be fully, fully confident in a, in a King Karuchak uh, because I know that you're committed to those principles and you're committed to your patients and, the, and you're, you're practicing what you preach by by uh, going out and meeting them where they are, which is not wanting to funnel all of their payments through insurance for yeah. 75% of their health care, but instead they just want to pay it to you directly. And what a novel idea, a direct relationship. We do the best we can. We're at the end of this segment. You've been listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.